This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Juwita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. We know people who are blind participate in visual culture and fulfill societal expectations, gender roles, and norms. Blind people like to go to the movies, hang pictures on walls, and some even dabble in photography. Blind women engage a number of cultural practices related to femininity, such as wearing makeup, matching clothing, and jewelry, and doing our hair. And yet, it is only through exploring blindness as a socially constructed phenomena that we can hope to undo the hegemony of visual knowledge and better understand how sight and blindness constitute one another. Blindness is beautiful. It offers rich insight into our world. Today, we discuss the book Blindness Through a Looking Glass with author Gilly Hammer. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Chuita Gupta and I'm the host of the program. It's wonderful to be with you today. I hope wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're staying safe and well at home. My guest today is Gilly Hammer. Gilly is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology and the Program in Cultural Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She joins us to discuss her new book, Blindness Through the Looking Glass, the performance of blindness, gender, and the sensory body. Gilly, welcome to The Pulse. It is so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Let me say off the top how much I enjoyed reading your book. It was so enlightening, given my own background in women and gender studies and disability studies. It was nice to, to read a book from a kindred spirit. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really, really happy to hear this. In the book, you talk about how you're sighted. It's an unusual thing for someone who's doing an ethnographic study to disclose in a book that, you know, we're sighted. And yet you have this interest in exploring and learning about blindness. Where does that come from? Well, um, this, research, this research started from my interest in gender studies. So as an anthropologist beginning my master's, I knew that I wanted to do a research about women, about gender. It's a topic that always fascinated me as a woman. And I think that gender is one of the most important category in our lives that really accompanies every aspect of the way we live. So I knew that I wanted to do a research about gender. And I was very interested in the visual culture, in the way women are being displayed in the media, um, in messages that we as women receive about beauty, about appearance, many times, you know, dismissing different ways of looking in, mm -hmm. in favor of an ideal type. So I was very interested in these topics. And this is what brought me to think about alternative ways to conceptualize gender, femininity, appearance. And this is what brought me to think and be interested in blindness and in blind women. 
And the book and my research was mainly with women who are blind from birth or from a very young age, because I was very interested in their concepts of beauty and appearance management and whether and how the beauty ideal affects them. And I really wanted to, to study, to do a study with blind women in order to better understand not only blindness, but also the visual world, uh, the way the messages of ideal way of being and looking are going through society. So this is how I, I started this research. And when you started the research and you start to contact participants, you start to get asked, are you blind? And in the book, you say, I was completely surprised by the question. I hadn't even seen it coming. Why were you right. so surprised by the question and how often it seemed to come up? So I started a study. I, I lived in Jerusalem at the time and I, I just connected. I made I, I picked up the phone and called the, the Center for the Blind in Jerusalem and asked if I can come to meet with people, to do interviews, to do observations in classes. This was the just the the way I was thinking I can start meeting with people. And then the the director of the center, who is a blind man, asked me a little bit about the research. And he and because I was interested mainly in women, he he directed me to a very nice woman who is teaching at the center. And she she was the one who asked me first and all, are you blind? And as you said, I was really surprised because it's not a category we are used to think with, right? Mm -hmm. And as an as anthropologist, uh, we are trained to reflectively think about our gender, ethnicity, class, nationality in Israel is a very big thing, mm -hmm. religious, religion, uh, religious status, but we are not used as sighted people to think about ourselves as sighted or able-bodied. Mm -hmm and everything that I learned from disability studies later on. And I really was the very beginning. I was a very young uh, MA student beginning her first big anthropological project. I was not, uh, uh, I didn't know so much about disability studies at the time. So I wasn't used to think about myself as a sighted person. I just took it for granted. Um, mm. So, and this question really, follow the research and I always and since then I always train my students to really break the usual categories we, we think through about our identity and positionality and to really put disability and ability everywhere because like gender it's everywhere and this is something that I learned from this study. Mm. The other piece of this that is worth considering is that not only is disability like gender everywhere, but people with disabilities have historically been written about, but not given a lot of input into that writing. We have often been the objects of research and not had a lot of agency, not had the best research, uh, not had the best experience uh, with academia and with researchers. Is that a concern that you think might have played into that question a little bit? Yes, of course. So when it came from blind people or people with disabilities, yes, and I understand it completely. And it's a very, it's it's a correct question to ask because as a sighted person, it's very important for me to explain my motives, my agenda, the way I, I approach this study. I remember, and I, I have it in the book, in the methodological chapter, that uh, I had mm -hmm. this conversation with a blind woman and she asked me, but I want to understand, how do you treat us, the women that you are interviewing? What are we for you? And then I explained that it's, 
it's a research population and it's my my research site and I come to ask questions and she was really concerned. She asked me many questions, but but am I a site for you? What do you mean by research site? And I explained everything about modern anthropology and the way that uh, now people, anthropologists, sometimes not go to faraway places as in the past, but really study their own communities or urban cultures. And I, I, I answered many questions and at that very specific conversation, I, I really, I was really trying to, to explain myself um, and I didn't know if I was doing a good job. And then this woman who was very interesting and I wanted her as a research participant because she had a lot to tell and she was very clever. She said, um, okay, but are you a feminist? <laughs> and I wasn't sure what the right answer was. So I just said the truth and I said, yes. So, so she said, okay, well done. But mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that this question didn't come up only from blind people or people with disabilities, but almost from everyone who heard about my topic, even from, from sighted or people without disabilities, because something about it was disturbing for people about mm -hmm. me as a sighted woman, uh, researching or studying blind women and it's very interesting to and I think when it comes from sighted people or people without disabilities this concern I think that it just shows again how much we trust the visual and how much blindness is such a constitutive element in our thinking about humanity and what counts as human because mm -hmm. it, it was something they didn't ask it my colleagues so often as I was asked this question. And I think every ethnographer have to address this question, regardless of ability or disability. Every ethnographer must uh, write and explain his or her motives and agenda and why he chose this research mm -hmm. population and what his uh, or her uh, positionality. Something that everyone, I think, should explain and you know, be very transparent about. But I was mm -hmm. asked about it a lot. And I think it's because people have this unique attitude towards blindness and sight and the visual. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to Dr. Gilly Hemmer from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem about her new book, Blindness Through a Looking Glass. You're talking a lot about blind women's participation in visual culture. And I know feminism has left our feelings a bit messy when it comes to things like adornment and participate in, and engaging in practices like makeup or fashion. On the one hand, it's a way to discipline the female body into an ideal. On the other hand, it's also a way for women to take back some of their agency. Did you feel that that contradiction played out in some of your research with blind women? Yes, definitely. And I think this is one of the great, uh, very important contributions that uh, the study of, with blind women really uh, give back to sociological theory about gender socialization and the way gender norms work. Uh, I think it's one of the big insights that blind women taught me about how complicated the visual norms about femininity are because they could be, on one hand, blind women could be very critical about it because they have to be very conscious about um, studying and applying gender norms because it had to be done, at least with my research participants, because they are totally blind and blind from mm -hmm. birth. They have to, they had to apply and learn the visual norms through the other senses or through other people. 
Um, so they could be very critical and conscious about them on one hand. And on the other hand, they had to, they could use it as a very important tool, for example, to manage stigma or to resist uh, stereotypes about blindness and femininity. For example, one woman who practiced as a very high meticulous kind of femininity told me, you know, I pay very a, a great attention to my clothes, not because I, I like uh, fashion so much, but because I know that as a woman with a disability, people judge me differently. So if they will see that my shirt have a stain or dirty, they won't say, oh, okay, she just had lunch and she accidentally mm-hmm. had something on her shirt. She would say, oh, it's because she's blind, this poor woman. So mm-hmm. they were very conscious about using appearance norms as a tool to manage stigma and resist stereotypes, while also being aware that it's also a disciplinary mechanism, but they mm-hmm. can use it the way that uh, could maybe help them in the social world. And I think it's to all women but with blind women they were very conscious and critical about the complexity of feminine norms and and appearance management. Gilly, one of the ways in which women often try to use visual culture strategically is in the world of dating, in the world of trying to find a partner. How did blind women fare in terms of locating a suitable partner? There's some really interesting ideas in your book. Can you take us through them? Yes, so one of my uh, chapters in the section on gender is about dating and intimate relations because it's really something that came up. As an anthropologist, we usually don't have uh, very specific research themes before we do the study and we wait to see what comes up from the findings. So I didn't plan to write about dating or intimate relations or I didn't even plan to write about motherhood, for example, But these issues really came up and maybe because the study was in Israel, that is a very pronatal society in which uh, most women are expected to have children and and get married. It's, I don't know if to say conservative or religious society, but but more than others. So it's a topic that came up and and I I wrote a chapter about it. And also specifically in Israel, there is a a discourse around military service because Mm -hmm. at the age of 18, all men and women are enlisted for the army for two to three years. And then um, blind women are dismissed for it. They can volunteer, but they... So there is also a, a militaristic context that I you need to take into account in Israel Mm -hmm. and it also affects dating because uh, for people, for veterans with disabilities, they have different um, heroism, we can call it, or social status that other people with disabilities don't have in Israel. And blind Mm -hmm. women really talked about how hard it was to find a partner because their disability wasn't a heroic military-related one, if you compare it to veterans, that it's mm-hmm. easier for them to find partners. So these are local discourses that play to it. But as a whole, again, I think that blindness played a double role in terms that on one hand, women talk about how blindness really allow them to choose more critically their partner or to be uh, or to pay more attention to the other senses. I had a research participant who became a very good friend, always talked about love from love at first handshake. 
and mm -hmm. the way she really pay attention to sensory details uh, that allows her to expand the way she understands dating or love or intimate relations. On the other hand, blindness really was also a challenge uh, that uh, for example, women, for example, they ask themselves, should I take my white cane uh, on the first date or not? Uh, should I say that I'm blind or not? Um, Blindness was something that made men scared that they won't fulfill the traditional uh, feminine role at the house or as a mother, which in Israel is very important. And on the other hand, if they were very um, competitive and looked good and successful, men were afraid of them because they didn't uh, follow the typecast of a disabled woman. So mm. blindness was this complicated thing that on one hand was a challenge, but on the other hand, women talked about it as something that really expands the way they can understand love or dating. Mm -hmm. One of the experiences that stands out from my own childhood as a congenitally blind woman is my parents telling me, Joita, they're staring at you. And you talk mm. a lot about the stare in the book, but you, one of the, so a lot of the, the, the participants are hyper aware of the stare as I was and am. But the thing that's really interesting in your book is the ways in which women stare back. There's one great example about someone who breaks out into dance because they said, let's <laughs> give them something to really stare about. So yeah. tell us about some of the ways in which women are critically uh, staring back. Yes. Yeah, so maybe I can give three examples. And first of all, as you say, women were very aware. And even though I interviewed totally blind women and women who are blind from birth. They were very aware of it. And I write about how we can think of that, that we need to expand the way we understand the gaze as also a way of speaking and way of behaving. That it's not only visual eye contact, but also, as you said, they, they, they taught me about very interesting way of resisting the gaze or at least negotiating it if not resisting so one woman as you said uh the one who became my good friend told me about how when she was a teenager she was really she was really tired of being stared at and then she was walking down the street with her cousin who was a, who is a very beautiful and her cousin told her, oh, they're staring at us. And his, my blind friend told her, yeah, because you're beautiful. She thought mm -hmm. you're staring at a beautiful cousin. And then she said, no, it's because you're blind. So she just started to dance. And her cousin said, what are you doing? And she said, well, at least now I'll give them something to stare at. And I think this little thing is really, on one thing, you acknowledge the gaze. And on the other end, you, um, you make fun of it you make a satire out of it. Um, and it's a very interesting tool, but it can be also in very mundane ways. For example, there was another woman who told how when she hear people whisper about her and when she walked down, walks down the street and she hears this mother said to her child, oh, you see, she's blind, let's move away or be quiet or she's blind. She, so she stops and she calls them. And then she opened the cane and she shows the child how it's like a magic. She can fold and open it. And then they start mm -hmm. talking and they can see that she's also a mother and that she's not uh, an alien. But she mm -hmm. said that it's, she pays a cost. It's, it's tiring. It, it costs mm -hmm. energy. 
it's something that comes with a cost to do this uh, negotiation of the gaze. Uh, and I give, and the third example that I give is of a research participant who is a musician. And she, she, she did this really brilliant thing. Uh, we have a, a, a holiday Purim, which is like Halloween mm -hmm. when people wear costumes. And then for Purim, when she was 18 in high school, she chose to dress up as a blind beggar, <laughs> um, like blind homeless. And, uh, and she sat at the entrance of the teacher's room and she played her melodica. She's a very gifted musician and she had this cane for money. And she had this sign that she put on herself, I'm a poor blind woman, please pity me. So people really didn't know how to address it. They were very <laughs> confused about it. And they, were, they, they didn't know what to do about this, uh, the way she came to, to this holiday. And it's a brilliant cultural negotiation of her stereotypes. And in the, in the chapter about the gays, I bring many quotes from the interview that I did with her, where she really wonderfully explained her thoughts and motives and how she was thinking about this custom. So these are just three examples for many. But I think, again, this is how blind women really expanded feminist theory about the gaze that usually address the, the subject of the gaze is very passive. And blind women showed me how women or people in general who, who experience the gaze can negotiate it in very creative ways. And actually this specific topic brought me to the, to the research that I did after this book where I worked with performance artists with disabilities because the way blind women talked about negotiating the gaze really made me want to do study with people with people with disabilities who chose the stage as way of life and to see how they negotiate the stage in, in, in the way they do their art. So this is something that also followed me to my, my other research. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking to Dr. Gilly Hammer from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem about her new book, Blindness Through the Looking Glass. As we wind up our interview, uh, Dr. Hammer, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to really just spend a moment talking to you about the experience that you had at the Dark Museum and by extension, the experience that many people have in dine in the dark uh, situations where the perception is that if you are unable to see, you have a rich multisensory experience. But you, in fact, want to talk about how it's a way to exoticize blindness, that you're almost a visitor in blindness, and you use a colonial gaze to look at blindness as other. Can you tell us more about it? Yes. Um, maybe I just say a note. I don't know if listeners uh, know this exhibit. So it's exhibit. It's an international exhibit. Uh, is it also in Canada? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So it's an international exhibit. I think that they have something in Canada, uh, but it, it was in the U.S. It's all over Europe. It's in, the, it's in many countries and Israel is one of them. It's an exhibit in total darkness where a small group of people walk through different spaces that simulates uh, a market, a boat, a park, um, and the guide is visually impaired or blind. And at the end of the tour, you go out to the light. Um, so one of the chapters is about this exhibit, at least it's Israeli version, but it's, it's, it's quite similar in different um, countries and it's a huge success. Uh, they have in Israel, 
they had a million visitors. It's a huge success, this exhibit. And as you say, I write that on one hand, it is a multi-sensory experience that allows people, sighted people visiting it to expand the way they experience the world. But on the other hand, it's if you think about it as a way to encounter blindness, it's not uh, the most successful encounter with blindness or otherness because mm -hmm. it again falls into the stereotypes first of blindness as total darkness, which is mm -hmm. stereotypes that we created in this uh, exhibit. And I explain why it's, it's only stereotypes. And again, it's, it's you experience blindness as though it's something that is scary. People are very anxious about darkness. Um, some people can't handle it. They just go out. They become very scared of it. They bump into objects, which, of course, blind people in their everyday life do not. Um, and when you and and I think that in, at least the exhibit that I study, when people went out into the light, most of them said, "Oh, thank God! Thank God, I can see!" Or finally, we are out into the light. So it's it it creates these very binary um, categories of blindness and sight, dark and and light, which in multisensory experiences or what I call dialogical encounters, which this is the opposite of, of exoticizing or colonialist encounter, people do not, people break down these binary categories and understand that society and culture and blindness and sight is actually, actually exist on a spectrum of experiences and not in, as binary categories. And in the book, mm -hmm. I give example of, of what I call their logical performances of blindness and sight, where people can really meet and get to know each other and understand visuality or the senses as a spectrum of experiences. Mm. Dr. Gillyhammer, it has been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Gilly Hammer from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who talked to us about her new book, Blindness Through the Looking Glass, The Performance of Blindness, Gender, and the Sensory Body. That book is available as an ebook over Amazon, as well as Apple Books, and you can download it if you like. I will warn you, it is a textbook, and it is a wonderful read, but it does take a bit of time to get through it. I would like to remind you that if you'd like to go over some of my conversation with Dr. Hammer, you can download the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. As we go, I'm I'm just going to add my two cents, which is to say that as a congenitally blind person, this book meant a lot to me. It was a respectful ethnographic study that looked at the experiences of blindness and tried to inform a larger conversation about how blindness and sight mutually constitute each other. It made me feel less like an outsider. And I hope that in having heard this conversation and been a part of my conversation with Dr. Hammer, it made you feel like less of an outsider. Blindness can offer so much insight into the world that we live in. It's a great way to tilt the looking glass, as a reviewer put it, and look at blindness as something fascinating that offers a rich way of looking at the ways in which all of our senses work together. I'd like to thank Dr. Gilly Hammer for being my guest on the program today. The Pulse has a technical producer, that being the wonderful Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Our technical supervisor is Paula Deneen. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to the program. We would love to get your feedback. You can find us on Twitter at AMI-audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. Thanks a lot for listening. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.